Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. Well, the title of my message this morning is Wonder in Our Midst. What's up, guys? Also from Texas, Todd and Ashley, how are you guys doing? So good to have you guys. You're amazing. Love seeing old friends. Um, Wonder in Our Midst. We're in a series called It's a Wonderful Life, uh, based on the Jimmy Stewart film, It's a Wonderful Life, which uh, I was deeply offended last Sunday when Pastor Colin Higginbottom said he's never seen this film. So I had to go to the Lord with that, but I've, it's all good. I've let my bitterness go. Um, and it is a wonderful life. Following Jesus is a wonderful life. And it's, um, it's so interesting to me, as, as I mentioned, this time of year, the whole world, believers, non-believers, everybody, turns their attention to God and Jesus. We were at the Dell uh, last night, the Hotel Del Coronado, and they, you know, it's pretty amazing um, around Christmas time, very magical and um, they had this kind of light show thing with all this music and uh, you just kind of lay on your back and watch all these lights in the trees with your, with your kiddos. And it's, it was crazy because I could hear, it was all like orchestral music, but I could actually hear people around me singing under their breath the words to these songs and like literally singing Jesus is Lord. You know, like, like whether they know it or not, whether they're a believer or a non-believer, they're proclaiming the truths of the Christian faith. And that's one of the things that's so great about Christmas time. And now that Thanksgiving's over, it is Christmas time, all right? I don't care what anybody says. I'm coming around. I used to be the biggest Grinch in the world, but now I really am starting to like Christmas. We decorated our house yesterday. Felt very, you know, it's just like a, manly thing to do. You get out there and you're putting your lights up. And I've had to work through a lot of trauma around decorating my house for Christmas. Historically, I've hated it. If there's one fight that you could take to the bank was going to happen every year in my marriage, it was going to be around decorating the house for Christmas. And then to add insult to injury a couple of years ago, finally, after being verbally destroyed by my wife, I just said, okay, you know what? Fine. I'll do it. And it was really like she was so mad because it was like December 23rd and we still hadn't decorated for Christmas. And so finally, I'm like, okay. And so I'm, this is when we owned a house in Eastlake and I'm out and it, I'm, it was so frustrated because not only, and it was me, okay, I was just selfish and lazy, whatever. But then to make things even worse, my neighbor is like Clark Griswold. Like inflatables all over the roof, like 10,000 watts of power flowing through, just like, and then, you know, I'm like trying to put up a strand of lights around my, the lintel of my door. And so my son is out helping me, and he was uh, four at the time, and uh, I'm up there on the ladder, just kind of already frustrated I'm doing this, frustrated that my wife is frustrated at me, frustrated at my neighbor for making me look bad, being Clark Griswold, and then my son says, hey, dad, do you think you could work a little harder so next year we can afford lights like the neighbors? <laughs> and then I look over 
and I see my wife belly laughing with her hands in her face. So I've worked through all that trauma. Yesterday, we had a very successful house decorating day. My son, I was, I was ready on the defense with my son, but thankfully, he had no comments. Praise God. But what is Christmas about? You know, um, people would say that it's, it's you know, a, a time of, of peace on earth where people can put their, their squabbles away at least for a couple of weeks and come together and, and, and just experience one another. And, and so it's about, you know, peace on earth. Some people would say it's about family and togetherness and, and the whole world kind of takes a pause for a few weeks and people travel from all over the country, all over the world to be with one another. And all of those things are you know, they're good things and they're present at Christmas, but that's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about one word, and that word is Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel, means God with us. There may be some Manuels in here. There's one right here. Come on. And listen, I got to give it up to you Latinos, okay? You guys are very self-confident, like, you will never meet a white boy named Jesus. But I know a bunch of Jesuses. I like that. You're like, you know what? I'm going straight to the top, baby. The name above every other name. My son, I'm naming him Jesus. My son, yeah, God with us. I'm naming him Manuel. You don't know any white boys named Manuel. So I respect you. We go for, like, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John just kind of a tear below, but you guys just. <laughs> Emmanuel means God with us. And that thought, those three words, probably the most important three words in that order, God with us, is what's, what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Every other faith is more like God above us or God over us. Christianity is the only faith where God himself entered mankind and became God with us. John Wesley, the, the great revivalist, one of the greatest Christian leaders in, in the history of our faith, on his deathbed, with friends and family all around him, mustered up enough strength for one last thought. And the very last words of John Wesley were, Best of all is God with us. And then he breathed his last and he died. And I want to read the story of where this name Emmanuel came from. It's in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. It's going to be on the screen behind me. This is an incredibly famous passage uh, about the birth of Jesus. And so we're going to read it. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind me. Now, the birth of Jesus is uh, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to, Dro to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus literally means God saves. Verse 22, so all this was done that it might be 
be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, it's a little, I mean, if you read closely, it can be a little confusing. Okay, so you're Joseph and Mary. You have the responsibility of naming and parenting the Savior of the world. That's pretty heavy. But then you get a little bit of a mixed message because the angel says you're going to name him Jesus, but then a little bit later on it says, and they will call his name Emmanuel. So they're like, oh, what do we do? It's a big decision. We've got to make sure we get this right. But if you read closely, you'll notice that the angel says to them, you will name him Jesus, but they will call him Emmanuel. Jesus claimed to be God which is, you know, I mean, it's audacious, but there's been a lot of people over the years. Like there's a radio host named Charlemagne that calls himself Charlemagne the God, okay? A lot of people call themselves God over the years. It's not that he called himself God, it's that people around him believed it. That's what is impossible to argue with. Not that Jesus said, I'm God, even though that's crazy, that's pretty nuts, but it's not that he said, I'm God, it's that people believed him, that his followers believed him. That's what is so impressive. And so they said, the angel says, you're going to name him Jesus. But when people see his miracles, when they see the moral character that is in line with the things that he teaches, when they see the peace he walks with, when, when they see him heal the, the, the sick and give sight to the blind, they will say, surely this is Emmanuel, God with us. And there's so many uh, there's a, a billion to choose from, but so many instances in, in the Bible where his closest followers, and it's like, listen, if you're going to convince somebody that you're God, you wouldn't start with the people that know you really well because they see you all the time. It's going to be really hard for me to convince my wife that I'm God. It's like you can't even hang your towel up after you shower. You're not God. It's hard to convince people that you're God when they're the ones closest to you because they see you all the time. They see every single thing. But isn't it crazy that the, the very first people to proclaim Jesus' divinity were the people closest to him? In John 20, verses 24 through 28, there's an encounter um, with one of the disciples named Thomas. And this is after Jesus has been crucified. Now Thomas called the twin, verse 24. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and Jesus stood in their midst. Did you, get, did you catch that? The doors are all shut and Jesus is just like, hey guys, that's crazy. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand in here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. And Bible scholars have had a really hard time with that sentence from Thomas because there's been a lot of people that doubt Jesus's divinity and they, they say that it was actually, you know, more like he saw something that was crazy and was like, wow, my Lord, my God. But it, that word and causes a lot of problems because Thomas said, my Lord and my God. An exclamation of worship. Him saying, you are surely 
God himself, and I give my allegiance to you, I worship you. Jesus' closest followers believed that he was God. The centurion that, that, um, that stabbed Jesus' side on the cross uh, when they were gambling for his clothes, and after Jesus breathed his last, there was a great earthquake. The veil of the temple tore from top to bottom, and this centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. Jesus' brother, James, the Bible tells us that his brothers did not believe who he was. Okay, it, it specifically says that his brothers did not believe him, his claims to divinity, all the, the things he was teaching. But then we have the book of James, written by Jesus' brother, professing faith in Christ. There's actually a story of the way that, that James, the brother of Jesus, died, not a biblical account, but written by a uh, historian named Josephus. And it's the account of how uh, Jesus' brother James died. And it's crazy. So James went from my brother's a wacko, telling people he's God, don't listen to him, he's crazy, to becoming the bishop of the Jewish church. He was the, the highest level of leadership over the early Jewish Christian church. They called him James the Just. And the account in, in historical documents is that the Pharisees came to James and said, you are like one of the most Jewish Jews we know. You are polluting people's minds with this talk of Jesus. You must recant. You must tell people that it's all made up, that Jesus is not the son of God, that, it, that he's not the Messiah. You have to recant. And so they actually took James, the brother of Jesus, all the way up to the top of the temple, and they stood him on the very edge and said, will you tell everybody, will you shout from here that, that you made it all up? Will you recant that Jesus is not the son of God? He's just another guy. And so he says from the top of his lungs at the very top of the temple, Jesus Christ is the one true God. No one comes to, uh, to, to faith in God except through him. And so the Pharisees threw him off of the three-story temple and he landed on the ground and broke both of his legs. And then the, the historical account says that laying there maimed with both of his legs broken, he prayed for the people that threw him off of the roof and they came and stoned him until he died. Now, how do you go from my brother is insane, he's a megalomaniac, don't listen to him, to all of a sudden, I will die for this cause. There must have been an encounter with a resurrected Jesus, God himself, God with us. Every single one of the disciples were martyred. All of them, except one. John is the only one that wasn't martyred. If, if it was made up, if the disciples were like, hey, this could be kind of cool, you know, we can, we can make up that this guy Jesus was the son of God, it'll be, people will think we're super great, because that's only gonna, like that'll last for a bit, but when they're nailing you to a cross, that's not gonna, that's not gonna take you through it. Right. Every single one of the disciples was martyred because they believed that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. The only disciple that wasn't martyred, not saying he had it much better, was John, the one who wrote Revelation, and uh, a Roman emperor that was incredibly, um, uh, had pervasive persecution against Christians, in the middle of the Colosseum tried to boil John in oil. And the account is that he got into the 
cauldron of oil and it didn't burn him at all. And he was preaching the word from inside this boiling cauldron of oil inside the middle of the Colosseum and didn't burn him. And so the emperor was like, okay, this is weird. I'm kind of freaked out. So he exiled him to the island of Patmos, which is where John wrote the book of Revelation. And the story is that every single person in the Colosseum was converted on that day because they witnessed a miracle that John the disciple was not consumed by the boiling oil. You don't do that kind of stuff if you think Jesus is just a pretty good teacher. You do that kind of stuff when you believe that he is Emmanuel, God with us. The first man in space was a guy named Yuri Gagarin. He was a Russian cosmonaut, and he's rumored to have said, and I say rumored, and that's important, um, that when he got into space, the very first human being to actually leave Earth's atmosphere and be into space, he's rumored to have said, I see no God up here. Now, the actual radio transcript doesn't have that, and so, you know, you kind of know it's because it was a... Um, a uh, Soviet-controlled, yes. So they, it was very much about religious suppression, and so that was a little bit, anyway, it doesn't matter. But so Yuri uh, Gagarin was, was supposed to have said when he got into space, I've been to the heavens and I have seen no God there. Which is really silly to think that space is like the second story and God lives on the second story and not the first story. It'd be like taking a Michael Kors handbag and not believing that it was designed by Michael Kors because you open the bag and you don't see Michael Kors inside. I wanted to find an analogy that would resonate with the ladies. C.S. Lewis um, wrote an essay in response to this. Um, I think it's called The All-Seeing Eye and, um, and, and says basically the same thing. He uses a much more elegant analogy than my Michael Kors bag. But he says that, that God doesn't relate to to us in, in a way of like, let me just come downstairs. You have to think of it more as a play. And, and imagine if, um, imagine the play Hamlet. And Hamlet is a character in Hamlet, clearly. And imagine there's another character in Hamlet who, who goes up to Hamlet and tries to um, convince him of this all-powerful, all-knowing creator named William Shakespeare how would that interaction go? So he goes to Hamlet and he says, yeah, let me tell you about this, this being named William Shakespeare. He's the, the creator of all we see. He created you, he created me. And Hamlet's like, okay, is he like, is he like a character like me? Well, no, he's not, he's not really a character. He kind of is, he's like it. It would be very difficult to be in the play and describe the notion of the creator. The only way that Hamlet could truly know who William Shakespeare was, is if William Shakespeare were to write himself as a character into the play. And that's what Jesus Christ is. It's God's self-disclosure about himself in a way that we can know him. Colossians says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what the all-mysterious, all-powerful, all-knowing God is like, you look to Jesus. There was a, I read about um, an author named Dorothy Sayers. She wrote um, detective fiction books around the turn of the 20th century. She was actually the, uh, the first or one of the first women to go to Oxford, very prestigious school in England. And she wrote this series of, of uh, 
detective short stories called uh, the Lord Peter Whimsey stories. And Lord Peter Whimsey was this um, kind of um, reclusive detective who was single and, and kind of just troubled, and, but he would go around solving these mysteries, and that's what these stories were about. And about halfway through the series, a character shows up named Harriet Vane, written by Dorothy Sayers. Now, in the book... Harriet Vane was one of the first women to go to Oxford and was a writer of detective stories. And so Dorothy Sayers, and a lot of people speculate it was because she actually fell in love with the character that she had created and that he was, she saw how sad and lonely he was. And so she wrote herself into the story as a character. And in the series, they fell in love and Harriet Vane was able to to redeem the life of Lord Peter Wimsley. And in the same way, Jesus, God looked down at us, at us trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, of us trying to fix ourselves, of us trying to right our own wrongs. And he wrote himself as a character into the play to rescue us. That is Emmanuel, God with us. So I want to really quickly, that's, that's great and, and powerful. And if you let that truth sink into your heart, it will change you, I promise. But I want to actually leave you with like, what are the implications? What does that mean for you? What does it actually look like to have God with us? What does everyday life look like? What is different about you because you have God with you as opposed to someone else who doesn't? What are the actual implications? And one of the, the words we hear around this time of year is the word peace. And I want to give you three quick points that, that you get from God with us. And it's peace with others, peace with yourself, and peace with God. Peace with others, peace with yourself, and peace with God. So when you have God with you, God with us, Emmanuel, you get peace with others. One of the very first things that Jesus said when his uh, earthly ministry started from the Sermon on the Mount was, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And when, when God is with you, listen, there is no place that will offend you more than church, okay? You will get offended. That's just a given. And it, that doesn't mean to get offended. Literally, to be offended means that someone was offensive. Think about it in, in sports. It means that, that someone has, has transgressed. You can't help it. Like, that's not your, you're going to get offended, and that's not on you because people will offend. They will be offensive, but you can determine if you will stay offended. That's the difference. You're going to get offended all the time. Happens to me all the time. But will I stay offended? That's the question. You're going to get offended, but will you stay offended? And I have found that with Emmanuel, with God with us, there's two two reasons why it's so easy to not stay offended. Number one is because when God is with you, you just see and believe the best in people because you know that God saw and believed the best in you. And I'm so thankful that God hasn't held me to the man that I was when I first met him, that he saw the man that I would be, saw the best in me. And so it's so easy for me now to see the best in others, to give people the benefit of the doubt. If somebody walks by you and doesn't say hi, 
And you're like, I knew it. I knew it. They did that on purpose. And it's because of da 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 da. And when they got invited to the thing on the social, and I saw them on the social media, and they didn't tag me on the social media, and, I, and then I knew it confirmed because when they walked by me, didn't even say anything. When it's like, actually, maybe they just had a fight with their husband and they're having a bad day, right? See the best in people, believe the very best. What's the, uh, this isn't in my notes, but um, what, in, in Spanish radio, they have, they call, they call them like, not novelas, but there's something like where they would, on the radio, they have these little short, like spoken stories. Um, and there was a story about uh, um, this, you know, person driving and, um, and someone comes up behind him and honking and honking, get out of the way, come on, get out of the way, da, da, da. and they were just like, ah. Oh. I mean, who does this person think they are better than everybody else? Well, all the rest of us have to sit here in traffic. They think that they can just zip around and go on the shoulder and da, da, da. And then the story goes that it turns out it was an emergency room physician that was on the way to save the life of the child of the person telling the story who was driving. And you never know what somebody else's day is like or what they're up to. And so one of the things that happens when you have God with us, God with you, is that you believe the best in people. And you know, number two, that God works all things together for good. So even when you are offended, and rightly so, you don't have to stay offended because God uses it for your good. I get offended all the time, mostly by a handful of people, if I was honest. One of the people that used to offend me, and I only say used to because he's not here anymore, was Pastor Drew Davies. <laughs> pastor Drew, who was the campus pastor of this church, if you guys are newer, um, Katie and I served under them. We were just kind of their, their armor bearers, their right hands, and we, we loved it and had zero ambition of ever taking over the church from them. And then, you know, one day they said, hey, we feel called to Seattle. We're going to go and plant a church there. And, and Katie and I, you know, took over. And then here we are. But Pastor Drew used to always, like, it would drive me crazy. I'd be sitting on the front row and he would be up here service leading. And then he'd be like, all right. Um, and now um, for the tithes and offerings, we're going to have uh, Mike, why don't you come do it? <laughs> like no warning, nothing. And I was like, Okay. And just would have to figure it out. He would all the time would be like, all right, you know, the, when we pray over the book of miracles, the beginning of service, he would literally be, and I'm just like, I'm just ready to receive. Like, maybe I need a miracle today, okay? Maybe my hand's going up. And then it'd be like, all right, so now we're going to pray. And uh, Mike, why don't you come up and pray? And I used to get so frustrated. But what I learned and had no idea at the time, now whether it was intentional or not on Pastor Drew's behalf, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But it was preparing me. It was preparing me to be a person that can be high capacity, that can, can get up here and, and, and preach the word and not, and not get all wrapped up in a million different things. God was using it. And so what used to just really frustrate me, actually I grew to, to appreciate that, that God used Pastor Drew to make me a person who lived ready. Because guess what? If you live ready, you don't have to get ready. Write that down. John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And people, they, they take this verse out of context and they think it means that this is, this is all about empathy and it's all about, you know, loving homeless people. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't love homeless people. I, that's not what I'm saying. But this verse is not about that. This verse is saying 
People will know that you are my disciples by how you love each other, how Christians love other Christians. That's how people will know, is, is by the way that we treat one another in here. And so here's my question. This is a good litmus test for you. I know this is, this is going to sting for a couple of you. Do you rejoice when others rejoice, and do you mourn when others mourn? Because human nature is not that. Human nature, you know, you have that friend that you love, but you also, it's a little competitive, and, you know, and they call you and like, I got a flat tire. You're like, oh, I'm so sorry. That's so sad. <laughs> yeah, don't nervous laugh like I'm the only one. You all know it's you too. It's easy as human beings for us to rejoice when others mourn and to mourn when others rejoice. One of the things that I, God revealed to me about myself that was so, was, was a, a real thing that I had to wrestle with was I had a hard time celebrating the victories of others because it illuminated in me all the areas where I felt like God was failing me. And so a lot of you have heard the story. I've told it many times, but years ago, I got invited to be a part of this prayer group of when the campus was, was brand new, had just launched. And, um, and it was a lot of the really successful business guys of our church. Pastor Mark was there, Pastor Rudy, Matt Lee, Chris Aguilar. And so we would uh, get together and pray in the morning. It was this kind of prayer meeting. And, um, and I, I, it was a time where I was still very much figuring things out professionally. And so I would pull up to this meeting and it would be, you know, Marco's Range Rover, Rudy's Bentley, Chris Aguilar's super sweet S-Series Mercedes, Matt Lee's mammoth monster truck, and I had my 2003 Honda Civic that didn't have a door lock because someone had broken into it. <laughs> True story, I would actually park it behind one of the bushes, so maybe it would just kind of be hidden a little bit. And every time I would walk into this prayer meeting and pray, it was like they were always had these amazing stories of financial victory every freaking day. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, I just needed money to just appear out of nowhere. And I prayed and poof, there it was. Oh my gosh, so crazy, yay. And I was just like, cool, yay. Because all the while I was floundering and struggling. And so I was unable to rejoice with the rejoicing of others. And God revealed to me that it was a sickness in me. I was unable to enjoy the victories of others because of all of my own distrust of God, that I was unable to, to believe that he had my very best interest at heart. And so it's a great question to ask yourself, can I rejoice when others rejoice, or, and can I mourn when others mourn? God with us will bring peace with others. Point number two, God with us means peace in you inner peace. And I think it's probably one of the greatest gifts that I have received is inner peace. I used to be a man filled with angst and inner turmoil and always striving and always struggling and always clamoring, trying to one-up other people's stories. And, and I would talk loud over people. I would interrupt people. And, and it was, it was this, this inner angst, this inner unsettledness of who I was and, and was I really worthy. And one of the greatest gifts that I've received is inner peace. Jesus said in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives you. 
but the peace I give to you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now the world wants to tell you that inner peace comes from looking inward. And it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's like saying, my car's broken, so I'm gonna look under the hood for the part to fix it. You need a mechanic, a professional fixer to fix your car. How silly is it to think that if you're broken, you're just gonna look inside of yourself and fix yourself. It makes no sense, but that's the wisdom of the world. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. It doesn't come from you, you don't muster it up. You can't create your own peace. You are incapable, I am incapable. But my peace I give to you, Jesus said. The greatest promise of the Bible is that I will be with you, Emmanuel, God with us. Peace does not mean the absence of conflict or the absence of trouble. It means the presence of God and that that will be enough. The most famous Psalm ever written, Psalm 23, everybody knows it. They, they say it at every single funeral. Yea, though I walk through the valley, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It doesn't say that you will keep me from the valley of the shadow of death, or you will turn the valley into a flowering meadow of fragrant flowers. It says, though I walk through it, you'll be with me. Psalm 91, a psalm that every single one of us clung to in, in 2020, says that I will be, God speaking, I will be with you in the day of trouble. Not that I will keep you from the day of trouble, but when it comes, I will be with you. And the implication is that will be enough. Years ago, when Katie and I first moved here, we had uh, a friend that also lived here in San Diego, and he just was incredibly tormented. Him and his wife just were always sick, always had all this crazy stuff happening to his house. And and it was, and I was newer to church and he had all kinds of um, distrust towards our church. And I remember uh, Dr. Matt Hubbard, who I was just getting to know at the time, um, had met my friend and it was, you know, Dr. Matt is and was a very busy guy. And, and we were just two brand new kids to the church. And I remember Dr. Matt called me. He's like, bro, I had a dream about your friend twice, like two nights in a row. I know God is telling me that I need to, I need to talk to him. Can you set up a lunch? I was like, yeah, sure. So I'm like, hey, my, my kind of crazy chiropractor would like to meet you. And he's like, okay. And so we have lunch and I'm sitting here, Dr. Matt's sitting there and my friend's sitting on the other side of the table. And Dr. Matt just begins to say, hey, listen, I, I've had dreams about you and I feel like God wants to set you free from all of this turmoil that you're in. And he didn't know anything about him. But, but said all this turmoil that you're experiencing. And for me, I'm like, that should have been enough, bro. You don't, this guy you don't even know is reading your mail. And, and I remember my friend said, you're telling me. And so Dr. Matt offered, hey, why don't you let me come over to your house and I'll pray and we'll, we'll clean your house out. We'll break all this stuff off of your life. And I remember my friend saying with, you know, so much cynicism, you're telling me that you can come over to my house, say a prayer, and magically all of this will go away. And I'm like kind of new to the church, so I'm kind of like, I like look at Dr. Matt like. And it was so powerful because Dr. Matt looked him right in the eye and just said, yes. 
It was such a sad story because my friend just never let it happen. Ended up moving away to a, another city, and I don't keep up with him. I have no idea what happened to him, but it was. I was so moved by the confidence and the peace of God that Dr. Matt had. Can you really come over to my house and pray one prayer and it all be fixed? Yes, because God is with us. I remember, I know there's people in here that I'm sure have, have, have dealt with or are dealing with, you know, very serious health issues. And um, I, I've been very blessed to have really great health my, my whole life. But I do remember a few years ago, I woke up at two in the morning and just was like, man, something's not right. And it wasn't, you know, just you kind of, you know, you know, like this hurts in a different way. And um, I was like, I woke Katie up. I was like, hey, I, I don't feel right. And something, this isn't normal. And so we, of course, did what any uh, smart person would do. And we Googled and went to WebMD and self-diagnosed, which, you know, instantly you think you have, if you Google anything, you have stage five cancer, by the way. They don't even have stage five. It's only stage four, but WebMD will tell you somehow you have stage five cancer. So be careful doing that. But anyway, was like Googling and decided, yeah, we should go to the hospital. And long story short, um, had an MRI done. And, and there was just this period of maybe 45 minutes where I was sitting there in the hospital bed. Um, and it was, uh, and Katie and the kids weren't, weren't in there. And, uh, and I, I was just waiting on the doctor to come back. And I remember you know, thoughts start to run through your mind. Like, what if it's something really bad? And it's happened to a lot of people where they get really bad news, where the doctor comes in and says, hey, I don't know how to tell you this, but whatever. And I just remember thinking, and again, I knew something was wrong. It turned out to be appendicitis and my appendix got removed and it was all good. But there was a moment where I didn't know what, what, what was gonna be said. And I remember just thinking, no matter what, he's with me. And that's enough. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's the if it's no news or the worst news because he is with us. And that's the gift of Christianity is that it doesn't matter what happens to you, good things or bad things, but God is with you and he will fill you with peace. That's the promise of our faith, Emmanuel, God with us. And lastly, as we close, point number three, Emmanuel, God with us means peace with God. Romans 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that word wages in the Greek um, is a word that actually speaks to a mercenary's pay. So a, a soldier who's on the wrong team being paid by the opposing general. That's what it means when it says the wages of sin is death. It means that when we are in our sins, before we've been reconciled uh, through Jesus to God, we are at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. You know, when, when people are dating, they talk about having standards. It's a good thing to have standards. And you'll, you'll find very sadly that a person's self-worth determines how high or low their standards are. And a standard is, this is a non-negotiable for me, you know, like, whatever. I, I will not date somebody who doesn't go to church or whatever. That's a standard, a non-negotiable. And people have, and you should have standards when you're dating. And my wife, when I met her, was and is an incredibly uh, 
self-confident woman with a very high um, self-esteem and very sure of herself and very confident. And so she had very high standards and it was very daunting. I immediately, like when I started hanging out with my wife, realized I gotta get my crap together immediately if this is gonna work. And so essentially what a standard is, is if you want to be close to me, you need to meet these criteria. And it's healthy and good and right and normal. God has standards because God has the highest self-worth possible. And his standards are impossibly high. They're the Ten Commandments. And listen, you don't even need Ten Commandments. It could just be called the One Commandment. Because, and that's the irony of the Ten Commandments, is you don't even need to get to number two through ten, because none of us even keep one, which is you shall have no other gods before me. Every single one of us, guilty. Just call it the one commandment. That's all we need. We don't need ten. Just the one. Anytime you've derived your value, who you are as a person, from anything outside of God, then you have made a God out of something that's not God. You've transgressed the first commandment. You have transgressed the standards of God and therefore are disqualified from relationship with him. MIT has standards, the most prestigious technical school in the world. I applied there. I put all that I am on paper. Here's my academic record. Here's my test scores. Here's an essay about how awesome I am. And they looked at me and they looked at their standards and they said, you are not good enough. You are rejected. The scandal of Christianity is that it's as if Jesus had a 4.0 GPA, perfect SAT scores, king of the, or I don't know why I said king. He is king. President of the chess club, high school football quarterback, every extracurricular ever. And Jesus says, hey, Mike, I want you to put your name on my transcript. I want you to put your name on my test scores. And then when MIT looks at you, they will say, we can accept him. Now that's really illegal, it's called fraud. And that's why Christianity is so scandalous. Every single person in here that's a Christian says, I'm a son or a daughter of God, even though none of us have done anything to deserve that title. There was only one person who did live a life that was worthy of that title, and it was Jesus Christ. And he said, put your name on my transcript. God, when you look at them, don't look at them, but look at me. And so when you have Emmanuel, God with us, it means peace with God. As we close, um, you know, you, you may say, hey, what about people that have never heard the Ten Commandments? What about people that, you know, live in another country, whatever? Well, fine. Let me give you another illustration that was um, from a, a theologian named Francis Schaeffer. He said, imagine that around every human being's neck when they're born is this invisible tape recorder. Now, he, he's older, so a tape recorder, young ones, is this device that you'd put this thing in called a cassette, and it would write the audio to a ribbon of tape. I know, it's crazy. So he said, imagine that there was an invisible tape recorder on every human being's neck, and the tape recorder only turns on to record whenever you 
create a moral judgment for somebody else. When you think or say, oh, he or she should blah, 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 or should not blah, blah, blah. When you pass moral judgment on somebody else about the way that somebody else should live their life, what they should have said, shouldn't have said, should have done, shouldn't have done, the tape recorder turns on, records that little snippet and turns off. And then when you get to heaven, God says, hey, you know what? I'm not gonna hold you to the 10 commandments. Those are, those are hard. And maybe you didn't hear them. Maybe you grew up in Madagascar, but God pulls the invisible tape recorder off of your neck, sets it on the table and says, I'm not gonna hold you to my standards. I'm gonna hold you to your standards. And he plays the tape recorder of every moral judgment you've ever made against somebody else. And every single one of us will realize we can't even live up to our own standards. This is never more true than when I'm driving a car merging on the highway. If I'm the person merging onto the highway and someone pulls up next to me, throw my hands up, what's wrong with you? Come on, I'm running out of lane here. You gotta either speed up or, or slow down. Or where, where do you expect me to go? I gotta. But then if I'm this person and someone merges onto the lane next to me, I'm like, hey, sorry, buddy, I was here first. Not my problem, you figure it out. I can't even live up to my own standards when it comes to merging into traffic. None of us can. We need Emmanuel, God with us. I'd love it if we just bow our heads and close our eyes as we come to a close. Maybe you're in here and you don't have peace this Christmas season. And you know, I don't need to, to say anything else about it. You know, when you self-assess, is there peace in my life? And if the answer is no, my question is, have you actually made him Lord? It's, it's not the same to know about God as to know God. It's not the same. Martin Luther, the, the very famous uh, theologian that started the Protestant Reformation, didn't become a Christian until years into, he was teaching courses in seminary as a professional theologian, knew all there was to know about God, but hadn't actually had an experience with God. And then Martin Luther experienced the grace of God and was saved, even though he knew about God for years and years. And maybe that's you in here today and you know that you know a lot about him or maybe you, 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 you kind of find yourself around him, but you don't know him. And the reason you'll know you don't know him because you don't have peace in your life. And if that's you, I wanna just walk you through a very, very simple prayer to introduce you to him. Bible says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so if that's you, maybe maybe you prayed a prayer like this a long time ago, but you've just fallen away, slipped away, whatever. Maybe you just feel far from God today, or maybe you've never in your life given your life to him, but you know that today's the day, going into this Christmas season, you wanna live the rest of your life with Emmanuel, God with us. Here in one second, I'm gonna to count to three and I want you to shoot your hand up so I know who I'm praying with. And like I said, I'm just gonna walk you through a very, very simple prayer. That's a prayer of belief. And so if that's you, on the count of three, every head bowed, every eye closed. One, two, three. Who needs to pray that prayer today? I see that hand right there, awesome. Who else, I see that hand, great. Who else needs to pray that prayer? I see that hand, amazing, proud of you. I see that hand in the back. Who else needs to pray that prayer to live a life of God with us. 
Once I've seen your hand, you can go ahead and put it down. Anybody else? About four or five of you. Amazing. Why don't we go ahead and stand to our feet? Can we give a big round of applause for those four or five that raised their hands? So proud of you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray a prayer, and uh, we're not going to just make you pray it all by yourself. One of the great things about having God as your father is that you get a bunch of amazing brothers and sisters, too. And so everybody in this room is going to drown you out and pray this prayer loud and proud. But if you did, raise your hand. I want you to pray this prayer with everything you've got. So come on, everybody in the building, let's say, Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you today for sending Jesus on a rescue mission to save me. Today I declare that my sins are forgiven, that heaven is my home, that God is my father, and I am his child. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already, and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.